If you're 50 and older, you probably died and thought you went to glory, right? <laughs> With all the music today. I don't poke fun at my mother-in-law a whole lot, but I'm going through this morning. She may join our church now, right? <laughs> Since we heard some oldies, but goodies, she kind of been holding out. Said, I'm, I'm wanting them old songs, preacher. Bring them thing, you know. No, it's a blessing to be able to sing both. And uh, all of us should be keenly aware of the fact that uh, God has sovereignly encouraged people to write music throughout the ages. And some of us need to remember that when Charles Wesley died, uh, the Holy Spirit didn't die. And so he can still encourage people to write new songs that are theologically sound, but it's also a joy to go back and sing the songs that, of the faith that we grew up on, right? And that are solid doctrinally as well. All right. First Peter chapter 4. I don't think I've ever asked you to turn to that book in my three years of being here. By the way, I've been here a little over three years now, right? Back at the 1st of August, when we were so busy that I even forgot about it. But somebody reminded me, but... 1st Peter chapter 4. <laughs> Fitting to say I've been here three years now, we're going to read verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. No, that's pretty fitting, right? But here it is. Here's the text this morning. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? For the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. It should be in parentheses after it, especially Baptist. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order, here we go. That in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's very easy for us to miss the mantra of God's glory displayed throughout this world. We saw this contrasted for us in Guatemala as our mission team gathered around a city dump at El Tahar, and we watched Guatemalans get their living out of digging through trash. Just a massive pile heap of trash that went way, way down into the ground. And we're just standing there, and you could look at this and then look up and see the glory uh, displayed with mountaintops. Just beautiful. That contrast ever, ever in your mind. I want to remind you that According to Romans chapter 8, verse 22, that even creation itself yearns for Jesus to come back and set all things back in order. The fact of the matter is, uh, in the, when it's all said and done, it won't look like that. Guatemalans will not be digging through trash for an income. Uh, God's glory will be finally displayed in all of its might and power. And so we anticipate that. We also miss the glory of God living in the age that we live in because it can look difficult. We can easily think that, uh, as the phrase would go, the U.S. is going to hell in the handbasket, right? And we look out over the world and we think, man, what in the world is going on? And we miss that. 
But if, if, you are, if you have an eternal perspective and you really think about the glory of God, then your mind should race back to the Garden of Eden when God spoke all things into creation. And His glory was on display. As a matter of fact, Job reminds us that the very angels sang and rejoiced when God created the world. And all of His glory was displayed for us in a perfect Eden. We might say Edenic bliss. Of course, we know what happened in Genesis 3, correct? We have the fall of man and sin that entered into this world. And brother and sister, when sin came in, everything changed. Radically changed. Creation changed. Uh, mankind changed. But God would again show his glory by letting man in on a redemptive plan. That God wasn't finished. He could have been. Just like in Noah's day, he could have just not even allowed eight people to survive and wipe man off the face of the earth completely. And he would still have been glorious without us. He didn't have to have you in order to be glorious. He has all glory without us. But to bring himself more glory, he created us. That's the reason for it. And so we think about the fall and we think about the redemptive plan that... that uh, Yes, the enemy will crush, will bruise your heel, but you shall crush him, crush his head. So we see that gospel beginning there and God sending a covering. And all the way up through the scripture, we, we hear the foreshadowing of the Son of God coming. And then the Bible says in Galatians 4, 4, that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a virgin, born under the law, that he might redeem those who are under the law. Never has God's glory been on display like the cross of Calvary. That he would die for your sins. That he would appease the wrath of his father. You were at enmity with God and the son of God turned away the wrath of God against you. When you trust Jesus as your Lord, uh, that is your position. The wrath of God against your sin is turned away and you have repented and trusted Christ only. He arose victoriously from the grave. Did I remind you of that? Not only that... He ascended into heaven. And not only did he ascend into heaven, but he sent his comfort to the Holy Spirit to live in us. But I want to remind you that it's not over yet. The glorious plan of God is that all creation will be gloriously redeemed. And one of these days, God will resurrect your mortal body and give you one that is immortal. Unless you happen to be alive at the coming of the Lord. But you shall not precede those who are asleep. Right? But you shall, we shall all be changed. Why? Because this stuff can't inherit the kingdom of God. God's got to give you new... So the Lord is working out His glorious plan. But I want to remind you today, when you read these words, the end of all things is at hand. I want you to first focus on the fact that the Son of God will appear again in all of His glory. It's not over yet. This world that we stand on today is a stage for the glory of God. It was when Peter wrote these words. But it is also a stage for the glory of God today. The end of all things is at hand. There are drastic cultural changes that we see every single day going on in our country. But it's still the stage for God's glory to be manifested in this world. Don't forget that. God is in control. He's in control of all things. And all of history is linear and with a purpose. And it's all moving in the direction that our sovereign God wants it to move. And I want to remind you today, if you're saved, then you stand in Christ's victory. 
And so when you read those words, the end of all things is at hand. We are following on the coattails of the very one who conquered death. If you are saved, you actually are in a triumphal processional, as it tells us in 2 Corinthians. And the Lord Jesus Christ is our God, and we follow in a certain victory. When I was a kid, I would go to bed at night, and you know we used to pray certain prayers, wrote prayers that could be redundant and monotonous when we were kids. Did you ever do that? But one that I would pray when I would lay down at night to go to sleep was, uh, now I lay me down to sleep. You remember that one? I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Now, that prayer really emphasizes the uncertainty of life. By the way, you should pray more than just now lay me down to sleep kind of prayers. But as you think about that as a five-year-old, it's a pretty scary thing to pray if I should die before I wake. Isn't it? A five-year-old, that'll freak you out, right? That's a serious thing to be thinking about dying before you wake up. Now, I want to remind you of something. Peter is meaning a whole lot more when he says the end of all things is at hand. But I can promise you, your death's in there. Right? The end of all things is at hand. Your death is in there somewhere, right? Whether you die now and you're before the end of all things, or when the end of all things takes place, you will have died physically. Or, and you will be raised incorruptible. But the fact of the matter is, it relates to us. If I should die before I wake. And then this says the end of all things is at hand. And we know a whole lot more is going to be said about what that means. But remember what John Dunn said. He said this, any man's death diminishes me. Because I'm involved in humanity. And therefore, never sin to know for whom the bell toils. It toils for thee. Every day in America, 7,000 people die. So that bell tolls for, tolls for how many people? 7,000 people a day. What if that bedtime prayer finally came true for you today? And you did die today. What if you knew this would be your last or your final day upon the face of the earth? What would you do? How would you live? Peter has that, your death. And the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is a whole lot more important, in view. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. Now, Peter is referencing end in the sense of the final day. Elsewhere, described in this epistle as the revelation of the Son of God, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The use of the perfect tense. I looked this up and said, Lord, are you really saying more in proximity about this day? And in fact, he is. There, thus, the appropriate rendering would be very near. That's the appropriate ending. The end of all things is very near. Now, hmm, the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself ushered in what we would call the last times. And consequently brought near the final consummation of all things. And that consummation is imminent. It is always before us. And this is the thought that controls 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. So, when you think about end times, the, the theological term is called eschatology. Eschatos means end of all, end things. Eschaton, ology is the study of. So, eschatology is the study of end times. So, when you think eschatology, you ought to automatically think ethical living. 
Now, the first thing we think about is, I need to draw me a chart and figure out when Jesus Christ is coming again. But that's not what Peter reminds us of. The end of all things is at hand. Now I'm going to tell you how you ought to be living in the light of the fact that Jesus is coming again and the end of all things is very near. That's how the flow of the passage works. In light of the second coming of Jesus, I heard a few years ago there was a man who said, I figured it out when Jesus is coming back. The Bible says no one knows the hour nor the day. So he said he was coming back at the half hour and at night. We all think about that. Yep. Well, his words go beyond our death to encompass the second coming of Jesus Christ. And when he returns, the entire earthly order as we know it will come to an end. Now, my question is, how soon are we to the day of his return? The New Testament tells us that the day of his return is not far away. The night is nearly over. It's almost here. And that's Romans 13, 12, if you want to write that one down. The Bible says the Lord is at hand for His coming, Philippians 4, 5. The Bible says in James 5, 8, the Lord's coming is near. Revelation 20, 22 says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Now here's my question. How soon is soon? In the voyage of the dawn treader by C.S. Lewis, you may remember a conversation between Lucy and Aslan. And what is Aslan? He's the Christ-type figure in the story. And he says to Lucy, do, do not look so sad. We shall meet again. And Lucy says, please, Aslan, what do you call soon? And he said, I call all times soon. I want to remind you of something. God does, not, does, does indeed call all times soon. If you just flip over to 2 Peter chapter 3. There are those who were scoffing about the end of all things. And the, Peter reminds them of what happened in Noah's day when they were saying, You fool, you've been building that boat for 120 years and it hadn't rained yet. But the flood came. Right? Here's, here's Peter's response after that. Verse 8 of chapter 3 of 2 Peter. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, beloved that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. So when I tell you soon, folks, on God's time schedule, it's soon. We're just two days removed from the resurrection of Christ. So think about it. Yeah, it could be at any moment. Here's what we know this world is winding down. Should this lead us to end time hysteria? You know that's going on in our world, correct? A lot of Christians live in eschatological hysteria. You don't need to order your food from Jim Baker this week. <clears throat> I don't think you need to be hysterically running down there and getting your canned food and getting all your ammunition up. That kind of hurt me because I'm a deer hunter, so I like to keep my ammo. But I'm just reminding you that um, that's not what you need to do. The awareness of the end, and track with me, church family, is designed to transform how we think about things and how we live. The end of all things is at hand. So when the Bible talks about end time events, the coming of Jesus, it's never simply for theological speculation. It's for an encouragement to obey Christ. It's an encouragement for us to live in a certain 
way. So the awareness of the end of all things is at hand should transform how we look at things and how we live. God brings the present, right? And the future at hand. Again, track with me about the glory of God. Knowing where you stand in God's plan changes everything. Changes your emphasis. So Peter's not concerned about theoretical discussion. He thinks that truth is meant to be lived out, not simply talked about and then ignored. There's an urgency with Peter's message here. And it's an urgency of simplicity, how we live. He didn't bog us down with uh, the hows and the winds and the wares of the second coming. He wants you to think about the so what. How am I supposed to live? So this is what awaits the people of God in order that everything in God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. Now look at, this, look at the sandwich. The end of all things is at hand. Verse 11 at the end. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. When it says that, it's not a wish. It's a fact. Understand something. God is most committed to His glory. And He will receive glory in all the earth. Period. No speculation. God is in control. That's the goal. The end of all things is at hand. To Him be glory forever and ever. Keep those things in mind as we track through this. Okay, I want to give you four marks of how we should live and what should govern our lives in the light of the coming of Jesus. Y'all ready? All right. First, clear your mind for prayer. Clear your mind for prayer. Look. Therefore, the Bible says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. If I'm going to just simplistically say to you, okay, what does that mean in the Greek text and how is it brought together? Here's the best stab at it. Clear your mind. And then, of course, the the emphasis of why you're sober-minded and self-controlled is so that you can do what? Pray. Amen. A sound mind has to do with an attitude of prudence. It's the ability to act in an appropriate way and manner given the circumstances. Now, when I look at this world, it's pretty easy for me to be frazzled. Right? It's easy for us to get uh, our, our focus off. The term sober is used commonly as a, a metaphor for what? Staying alert and not being intoxicated. That is the original meaning of sober. Do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We know that particular verse. But here, in this context, it would have to be met- metaphorically with don't be drunk on the things of this world. And it's so easy to get our minds cluttered with things like that and forget what we're called to do. This word is also the same word used in Mark chapter 5 when Christ heals the demoniac. And what happens? The Bible says he's literally left in his right mind. That's what happens when you're saved by grace through faith. When God changes your life, your mind changes, correct? So the term states that of an emotional, uh, you're under emotional control. So that under pressure, you don't wilt, you don't waver, you don't fear, or otherwise lose composure. It's an attitude of clear thinking. Thus, clear your mind for prayer. As a consequence of the imminent end of all things that all of us are thinking about because of this passage, believers must be prudent and vigilant in prayer. We are called here to live and pray in light of the future. Now, for some of you, when you look down and you see things like self-controlled and sober-minded, you think, oh, Christian life's just joyless, passionless, has not one thing to do with that. What it actually has to do with is some things are serious in life, right? And Peter is telling us here that we have to take this particular point seriously. 
The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, you need to be sober-minded and you need to be self-controlled. Important things demand people who can think seriously about things. And this aids us in that. Now, did you know that God puts a priority on prayer for a Christian? For his children, he puts this priority. And I think about my own life, and if you'll be honest, you're in the same boat I'm in. Lord, I'm horrible at it at times. To pray like I should. You know, we, we, we all could say that to the Lord. And as I say that, I feel the convicting power of the Holy Spirit like a wrecking ball hitting the walls of my own life and tearing them down to get me focused on how important prayer is. But we need to be ready with faithful prayers. Clear out the clutter. You know, prayer is not a hobby. It's actually a lifeline. It's more than a ritual. It's a relationship that all of us are called by God to invest in. How often do we pray exactly opposite of how the Bible instructs us to pray? The best tool to learn how to pray is to read the Bible. Pick up the prayers of Scripture and read them. Do you pray thinking about who you are in Christ? Well, that'll help your concentration when you know full well that without the grace of God, you're lost. Without God intercepting you before it was everlastingly too late, you wouldn't be able to pray to begin with. Think about the one who is the advocate for you every time you open your mouth to address the Father. Were it not for Jesus, we could never pray. When you pray, do you think about this world and God's plan? When's the last time we thought about Jesus coming again as we invoked our God in prayer and sought Him? Do you pray like the end is at hand? Do you reflect on the eternal consequences of the final judgment? Where lost sinners will forever be separated from God. You ever think about that? You think about what it means for you to be saved by grace through faith and will be able to escape the great white throne judgment. All because of Jesus. Do you lay hold of the gospel when you pray? I've learned something at this church over the years. Uh, it's easy for people to drift along and not even understand the gospel. You know, it's kind of culture shock when you start asking people, what's the gospel? I have no idea what the gospel is. Most people think the gospel is coming to church. Now, that's the result of you being saved by grace through faith, through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, which is the gospel, right? That, that's the result, but that's not the gospel. Coming to church is not the gospel. Being baptized is not the gospel. Trusting Jesus as Lord is the gospel. Understanding what, notice I said Lord, not Savior only, but Lord. A lot of Americans want a Savior who wouldn't want to go to hell. But do you follow Jesus? The gospel of the New Testament is that when you're saved, you follow Christ. That means He is your Lord. Do you reflect, again, on the gospel when you pray? Do you choose Christ and satisfaction with Him over your petty sins? Well, that'll change your prayer life, won't it? Do I need to say that again? I notice folks looking around, being a little chatty. Do you focus on Christ and that perfect work and victory that he actually has over sin? When we think about our own petty sins, we choose them over Christ. Are you praying for your own soul? Are you praying for your walk with Christ? Are you praying for spiritual growth? Are you praying for the lost? Are you praying for the word as it's preached by your pastor? Mm. As the old adage goes, if you pray your preacher full, he will preach you full. Right? 
Not just during the week, but how about when the word is being preached in this church? Do you pray, oh God, draw a circle around my heart. Speak to me through your book. You're going to learn in a few moments that when you teach the word, you're teaching the very oracles of God. Seriousness of that. But hearing it as well is so vitally important. Now, I pray for a lot of you when you have surgeries. As a matter of fact, I do my best to go to every one of your surgeries. And you, you would agree with that because I've been there, right? I try to visit you in the hospital. And I pray, God, would you guide the hands of that physician as he does the surgery, that scalpel. How much more should we pray for the preacher when the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword? And it's a surgery that must be done in your heart and life. And if it's not done, nothing else in life physically matters. What matters is the preached word of God. So, when you're always on a tear, when you're uptight, when you're running around from one thing to another, when you're stressed to the max, it's easy to be distracted, to be bothered, and be controlled totally by your circumstances. And you don't have self-control, and you don't have a sober mind. And guess what happens? You literally can't pray. And you don't stop long enough to do so. So, the point is, folks, in light of the approaching end of all things, don't panic, but pray. Seek the Lord. Keep it together between your ears so that you can pray. That's number one. All right, clear your mind for prayer. Number two, show constant love for those in the Christian community. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now, underscore that word earnestly. Because we can come away with that thinking that the primary issue is to love one another deeply. That's not a bad translation. But I thought to myself, what's going on in this text? And the reason I worded the division like this is because ultimately this is what it's saying. Show constant love for those in the Christian community. This Greek word, extenus, means fervent or that we translate fervent or earnestly. Just works better for the smoothness of the reading. It's not wrong. However, the major issue is strenuous, a reaching out. In other words, a constancy to the love. It's the love that goes on and on and on and on. It costs something. Did y'all know that real love costs something? If you really love a person, real love means uh, you're going to go to the wall for them. You're going to stretch to the limit. You're going to put yourself in a place where you can be hurt. And boy, people don't like that, right? That's why a lot of people leave the church. Because they've been hurt in a particular way and they want to be isolated away from that. But I tell you something, folks. Uh, if you don't want to be hurt, you can't be around people. But if you love Jesus and you're saved, you've got to be around people. Correct? So, C.S. Lewis, in his book called The Four Loves, explained love this way. He said this, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Is it not? Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly even broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Wrap it carefully with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket of your own selfishness. He goes on to say, there it will never be broken. And he said, it will become unbreakable, but also impenetrable and irredeemable. To love is to open yourself up to the possibility of being deeply hurt. And Peter says this reason. Above all, keep your love for one another constant. Now the next part expresses the reason why our love must be constant. Y'all see it? 
since love covers a multitude of sins. Now let me tell you from the outset what that doesn't mean. It has nothing to do with a human agent, like a human being able to cover, your love, cover you and your sins with love. It has absolutely nothing to do with a human act. That has no support in the Bible, no support in Peter's epistles at all. Cover is used in the sense of forgive, with a sense that love always forgives the others. Uh, I was reading this and studying and I said, Lord, is there some kind of contrast with another verse of Scripture? And I think there actually is. There is an original, there's an original proverb, and here's what it says. You can write this down. I'm flipping soon, fast, so you'll be out of here fast, right? Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. I believe that when Peter was writing this, this was his thought, that hatred stirs up strife, love covers offenses, and thus he gives us this. Why? Well, if hatred stirs up strife in the sense of making things worse, then love covers the offenses and always seeks to minimize the wrongs by refusing to take offense. How you like that, Baptist? We are notorious for taking up an offense. We get bent out of shape over the simplest, minute things in life. We can get so bent out of shape. There are people who don't frequent FBCO anymore because 20 years ago, they got their feathers ruffled over what color carpet you put in this building. I'm not trying to be funny, but it's the truth, isn't it? It's unbelievable, the offenses. So this accords with Peter's insistence on a non-retaliatory response. Chapter 2, verse 23, look at it. And then 3, 9 brings this very same thing up. Let's scan your eyes over to the other side of the page. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for those. Bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So every time someone wrongs you, you have two, questions. You have two choices. Every time someone wrongs me, I have two choices. I can deal with it. I can forgive it, I can cover it, and I can move on, or I can drag that person through the mud and in hatred create all kinds of dissension. The meaning here is that love refuses to wash its dirty laundry in public. It doesn't mean you dumb down what sin is. It has nothing to do with that. What it does mean is that you handle love handles sin privately. It goes out of its way to veil sin and to deal with it discreetly. It's exactly opposite of hatred that will attempt to expose weakness and seek to humiliate people. Love deals with sin only as a last resort publicly. We've even had to do that at our church, haven't we? When it becomes an issue publicly that we have to deal with publicly because of unrepentance, we'll do that. There is love, then there's forgiveness, and then there's silence. I didn't hear one amen. Is that not true? If we have constant love for one another and we forgive, then we're to keep our mouth shut. It leads to silence. Love has a short memory and sealed lips. We need to hear this because people are going to fail you a multitude of times. Love isn't surprised when friends fail. How many times have we looked on Facebook? And unfortunately, you shouldn't be putting it on Facebook to begin with. But when you do, we look at what happens to people and we're like, you shouldn't be surprised when friends fail. Love isn't surprised 
when promises are not kept. It isn't surprised when others write unkind letters. And isn't surprised when you're criticized unfairly, right? Fervent love actually expects others to fail. Why? Because everybody in this building is a human being. And you fail. It expects to be hurt. And it also expects to be treated at times unfairly. It goes on loving anyway. How many of you in this room are married? My wife and I have been married 28 years. And if love didn't cover a multitude of sins, we'd be done a long time ago. And so would you. Marriage is the greatest place in the world for sanctification. Two sinners living under the same roof. Don't you think God doesn't know that? Understand that that's why marriage is so vitally important. God puts you there as an analogy to an already existing reality. Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. That blows any homosexuality out of the water. There's no way to have a biblical narrative of a male and female in the garden and marriage given as the bride and bridegroom and it not be a man and a woman. And as a matter of fact, in the day, there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb where God will show you the entire reign of Christ the bride, the groom, and the church the bride that He purchased by His own blood. Now I'm going off to preaching something I shouldn't be preaching, right? But marriage, you know how this works. You've got you to forgive. Well, the same is true for the church, folks. No church can survive very long unless the members decide that they're going to love one another, cover a multitude of sins. Amen. Why? Because sin is everywhere. And love's got to stretch out. It's got to be constant to cover it. I've learned something as I've gotten older. It used to bother me. But it doesn't bother me as much anymore. But here's what I've learned. A touchy Christian is a contradiction in terms. David's been reading a worship book by R.T. Kendall, and I was perusing some good statements on forgiveness and love covering sins, and here's what it says. He wrote this in a book called Total Forgiveness. You don't tell anybody what they did to you. You don't try to intimidate them. You don't even try to make them feel guilty. You let them save face. You accept the matter of total forgiveness as a life sentence for you. You must keep doing it indefinitely. You pray that they will be blessed and that they'll be let off the hook. Folks, that's a big part of our job description as believers. You are a coverer of a multitude of sins. It's quiet in here. Y'all ticked off at somebody? You might be ticked off at me. I don't care. No, I do. All right. Here we go. Show hospitality is the third thing. Listen to this. Show hospitality to one another and do it. Without grumbling. Now, what this means is, obviously the church body would come together in a, in a structure, whether it be a home or a small church or whatever in the day. But that's not where hospitality ended. And most people will remind you that this actually, generally speaking, has to do with hospitality when you're dealing with strangers. Uh, so, how does that work? Well, not only do you greet people here at the church, but you are to be hospitable, even inviting people into your home uh, as a gracious resident of the home and loving those who come into your home. The word literally means kindness shown to strangers. So, in those days, to welcome other believers into your home was a matter of honor, being hospitable. But there's a qualification. You need to do this without grumbling. Oh, I've got to deal with people again coming over to my home. Ugh. 
got to clean up everything, got to get all this stuff ready. Well, the early church saw their homes not only for a shelter for their family, but they saw their homes as a tool for ministry. That's what the meaning is. They understood that God had given them that place to live in, but not only to live in it, but to minister in that home to others. Far too often we view our home as a primary shelter from uh, the world, and we close our garage door and we're like, "Mm, that's it with the world. I'm at home, I'm in my shelter, I'm in my place, and I've locked the entire world out. I'll only crack the doors to entertain a few certain people, select nice people, approved people. Peter's suggesting that we're to open our homes up as a ministry to the entire body of Christ. No amens? It includes brothers and sisters in Christian community who you may not know very well. Uh, They may not be in your circle of friends or your circle of influence. See your home for a place of shelter. That's okay. But you ought to see it first for a tool for ministry. Okay? Your home was never meant to be a monument for your net worth. It wasn't. It's never meant to be a badge for your status or a refuge for you to hide in from the world that we live in. Uh, We need to be good stewards with what God has given us. And sure, it's great to have a home. Uh, You can have a museum for your china, ladies. Some of you men like it, yeah. You can have a gallery for your pictures. Or for me, down in my basin, it's it's all my trophies. That's deer heads, right? You can have all these things up. You can have a garden for flowers, and you can have a playground for kids. But that doesn't touch the deepest reason God gave you your home. He gave it to you as a tool to minister to those. It might very well be the single best evangelistic tool God will ever give you for Christian ministry. So I want you to use it, right? Clear your mind for prayer. Be quick to forgive. Open your home to others. And finally, listen to this one. It's Labor Day, right? Tomorrow? Uh, what's that given for? Because of American workers, the prosperity, the well-being, the fact that people labored. I'm not sure how much that happens today. That's another reason why we sang all these old songs, because it's pretty much on the backs of the old people in this church that we're surviving. We ought to clap for that, but that's the truth, right? All I got to do is show you your tithing record. (coughs) All I got to do is show your tithing record record and show you if it wasn't for the older people in this church we wouldn't make it I'm not kidding with you you ought to think about that if you're not a giver and serving in this church it's part of serving right second Corinthians remind you that you're putting a burden on other faithful believers because you don't give you want all the benefits of the preached word and all the service but you're tied to your money and your house and everything else you have just a reminder I'm I'm hitting it all today right Labor Day. Look, use your gifts to serve others. Very important. Notice this. In light of the end of all things is at hand, you Baptist, listen to this. As each has received a gift. Does that not say at least three things to us? Every believer has a spiritual gift if you're saved. Every gift may not be someone else's gift. You don't have all the gifts, no matter what the charismatic church says. Paul reminds us, don't seek those gifts. They're given to you by God. If you've got all the gifts, then you don't need us because you're a church by yourself. Right? But then thirdly, use your gift to serve others. And Peter uses this word charisma, charis, grace. So the word is grace, gifts. 
In other words, God has given us grace gifts to be able to carry out the ministry of FBCO, and you've been given the gifts, and you've got to serve with them. These are given as grace gifts. According to Paul, they're given to, for two reasons, to build up the church, 1 Corinthians 12, and then also to honor God, chapter 14, 25. They're gifts expressly given by our God. And hey, hey, this is what it says. We're stewards of it. And that noun refers to trusted servants responsible for the management of the household and is, and is a fitting term for a Christian community. You're a household manager. If you're a member of FBCO, then you're a member of this Christian community. God has given you a gift, and you're supposed to be plugging in and serving with your gift. If all church is, is coming on Sunday morning, hearing a sermon, and going home, you're missing it. You're missing what it is that God would have us to do. In verse 11, we're categorizing spiritual gifts into two. Peter calls them speaking gifts and helping gifts. So that term, speaking gifts, is a variety of speaking gifts designed to edify the body. And we're reminded here of that need and the seriousness of speaking by saying this. If you've got the gift of teaching, you're doing so by the very oracles of God. And I know you might get bent out of shape with this. For making the Baptist faith and message something that we adhere to in 2000. And you may get bent out of shape because the preacher, is that really a big deal? Why are you sticking to that? Because I have to. It's the very oracles of God. It's the Bible. And we're not going to compromise on it. We're going to stand on what the Word says because it's the very oracles of God. So if you're a teacher, keep in mind as you stand before your pupils, wherever you're teaching, you're bringing out the very oracles of God. It's serious when we're teaching and preaching the Word. But these speaking gifts, whether you do it one-on-one, -on -one, privately, or corporately as a body, we need to think about these are the very words of God. And next we've got helping gifts. And that includes everything else in our church that's not a teaching gift. It might be uh, cooking a meal. Aren't y'all thankful for Miss Mary Bennett and all those ladies? Man, that step up when someone dies and they serve. That is a gift from God to have that ability to serve. How about uh, cleaning up after a church event? That's not just Don's job and, and Mark, uh, what's your name? James's job <laughs> and, and, and Brother Mark's job. That's not, that's, that's everybody should be stepping up to do that. How about stacking up chairs or counting an offering or changing diapers in the nursery? <sighs> that's a tough one, isn't it? We need some help in extended teaching care. We need help people stepping up. How about writing a note of encouragement or calling a friend on a phone or giving money or praying or counseling or ushering? These are places of service in the church. There are 100 and 1,000, there's 1,001 other things we could be doing. Whatever your gift is, listen to this part. You serve with the strength of God. Y'all see that in the text? Uh, we do it with His strength. And as a matter of fact, it says the varied grace of God. That means like a cloak would have many folds in it, many fabrics, many colors. Uh, think, of a col think of the colored grace of God. We're not all alike. <laughs> Thank the Lord, right? We don't have two dons running around. We'd all fall apart, wouldn't we? Yeah. We don't, uh, it's just the way God is. He's not monotonous and monotone. He saved you by grace through faith, and he's given you a gift. And I believe the gift he gave you fits your personality. He's sovereign. And he dispenses those gifts, Ephesians chapter 4. And he's given these gifts to us. Here's a progression in the text, though. From God, to us, to others. Right? From God, to us, to others. And even when we're serving, 
We're doing so in the strength of our God and not our strength. What an awesome reminder. And then this leads to this doxology that all praise and glory belongs to the Lord. Here's the whole secret of Christian, Christian life. And what is the result? So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. And this doxology expresses the purpose of the exercise of spiritual gifts in the church. It's not for you uh, to be in a position, to be noted, to, get, to, to find favor. The reason is you want to give praise to Jesus Christ. So doxology. You're serving in the church ought to be a doxology of praise to the maker and creator who gave you life physically and spiritually. It keeps Christ as the focus of all of our work at this church. Amen? The, the entire focus should be Christocentric. We should keep our focus on Christ. The wording in the Greek indicates describing glory and power to God is not a wish, but a fact. In other words, if we don't do it, he'll raise somebody up who will. Nobody's indispensable. Just drive by the cemetery, you'll figure that out. If you think you're indispensable to the work of God, forget it. You're not. Well, it's a blessing when we do submit, right? And serve the Lord. So in conclusion, what have you done with your gifts that God has given you? Who have you helped along the way? Is your church better and stronger because you're here? What kind of church would my church be if every member were just like me? How many souls would be saved today if it all depended on what I said? Woo. What kind of church would my church, FBCO, be if every member were just like you? What if they served like you and gave like you? What would our church be like? What's something to think about, isn't it? The end of all things is at hand. And folks, we live in turbulent days and mark her down. It's going to get worse. Don't look for the government to help us. Only God can help us. Right? God is in control of all things. Morals will be jettisoned. They've already been jettisoned. It'll happen more. Nation will rise against nation. And here's the deal. Clear your mind for prayer. Be constant in your love for others. Show hospitality. And use your spiritual gift to serve others. And if this is the last day that God gives you on the face of the earth, let it be said of you and me that we want more of Jesus and not less. Great God, we know that the end of all things is at hand. We don't know if that's tomorrow or the next day or the next day, but it's coming. Just as you promised in Noah's day, Lord, you're a promise-keeping God. And you said... The sun is coming again and the end of all things is at hand and it is. Just as the sun rises in the east in the morning as the world rotates on its axis, you are coming again. Lord, prepare our hearts. These things are simple. Clear our minds. Love constantly. Be hospitable. Serve with our gifts. Why? So that Jesus might receive all the glory. God help us. In his name we pray. Amen.